Uh, but I just want to say, I, I think it is good for us uh, at a time like this uh, where there is anxiety and fear uh, to sit down with God's word and to remember what we're about, remember the things that are important, and uh, to, to balance um, the, the fear and anxiety with the reminders of who we are and the hope that we have that's really independent of anything that happens here on earth. And uh, it's important for us to, to set our mind on things above at a time like this where there are some things to be afraid of and some things to be concerned about, and yet at the same time, uh, we have promises that far outweigh anything that happens to us in this life. So let's think about some of those things. Luke chapter 10 and verse 17. Luke 10 and verse 17. It says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Great insight into what the Founding Fathers wrote there. In particular, I am struck by the fact that they used the phrase, the pursuit of happiness. Because the Founding Fathers understood that this is what makes life life. We pursue happiness. And there is also in that, though, the idea that, that it is a continual pursuit. It's not something that you get and then you just say, here I am, I'm happy. We're always pursuing personal contentment. And yet it is always a little bit outside of our grasp, right? We have to go a little farther. We want a little more. It is fleeting and uncertain and ephemeral. That's what we look for in life. Or another way to put it is we look for joy in life. We look for the things that will make us joyful. And the problem with that is that we find that it is fleeting. That it's usually based on circumstances or moods or people. And that those things just don't stay stable so that we can just continually be happy or joyful. So we're happy when our team wins and we're sad when our team loses and we're sad when none of the teams get to play anymore. <laughs> we're happy when we get to be with the people we love, right? But we're sad when we leave them. Or we enjoy doing things we love, but we're sad when inevitably we have to stop doing the things that we love. And so there is that constant tension between joy and disappointment. So what happens in our world is that our society pushes us toward just seeking more and more pleasure. We look for the next thing, the next high, the next taste, the next physical sensation, the next laugh, the next video game, just the next. And on and on we go, always pursuing happiness. In fact, that is eroding our society to the point that, that really, we really prefer to play even if we don't ever get to our work so that our play kind of outweighs our work. And that's why I want to talk about this for a few minutes this morning from this passage. That this passage shows us that the problem is with where we are hanging our joy. Jesus is going to teach us here about what we're going to call the right kind of joy. And I want us to see what that looks like, and then I want us to see how that might help you and me in a time like what we're living in right now. So the context here in Luke chapter 10, the reason I bring this up, the reason we're talking about joy from Luke 10, is that Jesus, back in chapter 9, sent out the 12, the apostles, and it tells them specifically that he gives them power and authority to heal and uh, over demons and diseases. So they go out, we call that sometimes the limited commission, but then at the beginning of Luke 10, he sends out the 70, or yours might have the 72. 
And so as he sends them out, look in Luke 10 and verse 1. Luke 10 and verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, it doesn't specify here that he sent them out with any special powers. That is true in chapter 9, but it's not true here. But he does tell them in verse 9, for example, to heal the sick. So there's something going on there. So he sends out these 72, and then back they come. And as they come back, that's where we started in verse 17. So in Luke 10 and verse 17, it says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They seem surprised, but it's a happy surprise. They're, they're pleased. They are rejoicing in this. Now, they're rejoicing because their work has gone well. As they've gone out to preach, that's gone well. But particularly, they're rejoicing because this is cool. We're able to do some things that we weren't able to do before, and they're excited because even the demons are subject to them in the name of Jesus. It's important to remember what a problem demons were in the ancient world. I think we are a little insulated from that, and we don't really think about the, the difficulty that this posited for them. These were recognized in that time as agents of Satan, but when you see someone who's demon-possessed in the ancient world, there's nothing you can do about it. You know, it just is what it is. In fact, you see some examples in the Gospels of the, uh, the man that is just living out in the tombs, and they try to bind him with chains, but he breaks the chains. They try to do things to help him, but what can you do? You just have to make him live away from society because, I mean, there's very little you can do. You can't help him. And if, if my understanding is correct, this kind of demon possession was an involuntary condition. It's something where the demon came upon the person independent of their will, and then no one was able to help or do anything about that. So it's understandable that the 72, when they come back, they say, look, we can do something we could never do before, and they're excited. They're joyful about that. So verse 18 Verse 18 of Luke 10, and he, that's Jesus, said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Okay, so let's take a minute uh, on that one. So first of all, I don't think that what is described here is Satan falling from heaven as some kind of physical act. You know, remember Satan is a spiritual being. And that's not what Jesus says. He says, I saw Satan fall. And I want you to look at the wording carefully. In verse 18, it says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Okay, so you could take that one of two ways, right? You could say, I saw Satan fall, and then it was like lightning from heaven. Or you could say, I saw Satan fall from heaven, and it was like lightning. Okay, you see how either of those constructions works. I think the idea here is a comparison that I saw Satan fall, and it was like lightning you see in the sky. I saw him fall. Now, his fall, of course, refers to his defeat, but even that is not very clear. So is Jesus talking about in some way back when, in the beginning of time, I saw Satan fall and be thrown out? Or is he talking about something he has seen as these men are going about their work? Remember, they're going about bossing around Satan's minions. Is Jesus saying, I am seeing Satan be destroyed. I'm watching that as you go out and do that. Well, now that we've gone through all the options, I have to tell you, I'm not really sure. But I will say, what he is saying is the same either way. The point is this. God has authority over Satan. And what you are experiencing, 72, as you cast out demons, is the dominion of God over Satan. And Jesus says, that's always been true. It continues to be true. And as you go forward preaching this, it becomes true in an even newer sense. That sense in which Jesus says, you know, the strong man is being bound. And now we're plundering his house. 
So that's happening here. So Jesus tells these men, don't be surprised if you can control Satan. I've seen him fall. If you're on God's side, then you have victory over Satan. Verse 19, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So Jesus says this authority is coming from me and he is explaining why things have gone so well. It's because I gave you this power and you can walk on the different uh, enemies that you might have, particularly uh, these agents of Satan. Now, I don't think what he's getting at, do I need to say this? I don't think he's saying that they could never be hurt. Some of these people are going to be killed. I don't think that's the idea here. But the point is the same. He's saying your authority over the enemy is complete. I think it's interesting that he tells them that after they come back, not before they go out. But now after they come back and they've seen just what it is that God can do for them. So one of the things that I think we need to point out is it's important for them to understand where this power comes from. Because there was a lot of confusion about this during their time. Some people thought that the name of Jesus was a name you could use like a spell. You see that in the book of Acts. You remember the guys that were Jewish exorcists who go around saying, I cast out the demon by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the demons say, well, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? Okay, so that's not the way it works. They don't need to think that Jesus' name is some kind of magic code, that they say that and then the demon has to go out. Some people were also saying, well, you cast out demons by Beelzebub. So you're doing this because you're in league with Satan. Well, that was confusing too. He says, no, what's going on here is I'm empowering you and you are fulfilling God's work in throwing out Satan. Now, verse 20. We're almost ready to start the lesson. Verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus challenges their joy. He says, do not rejoice in this. Now, it's not that they've sinned by rejoicing in this. That's not what he's saying. It's that it's a little misguided to be excited about one part of this and miss the big part which is what that means. It's one thing to say, I'm excited that the demons are subject to me. It's another thing to say why that's true. So Jesus says there's some kind of different, deeper kind of joy that I want you to seek out. So that's what we want to talk about for a few minutes this morning, the right kind of joy. First of all, Jesus says, rejoice in your relationship with God. So we're in Luke 10 and verse 20. Verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is the right kind of joy. The joy that says, not I'm excited about what I can do because I'm connected with God, but I'm excited that I am connected with God because these powers are going to pass. And it might be that I'm not able to do the same things anymore that I used to be able to do, but that relationship with God is an eternal reality. Now that picture in verse 20 the picture, rejoice that your names are written in heaven, has a long history in the Bible. The idea is of God having a book and writing names in the book of those who belong to him. So I'm going to give you a few passages here on the board. Uh, Exodus 32, verses 32 and 33. But now if you will forgive their sin, this is Moses talking uh, to God. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Now this is a, Moses is going for it here. He's saying, I would rather, you know how Paul says that about the, the Jews, I, I would rather be accursed for their sake. And Moses is saying, hey, if you're going to be rid of these people, block me out too. And God says, uh, we're not doing that. 
the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. So you don't get to tell me who to blot out, not blot out. But the idea of a book, that these are my people, and Moses is saying that relationship is represented by a book, and God says, yes, but uh, you don't get to control who's in the book. Daniel 12 and verse 1, but at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. So people are saved who are written in the book. Uh, Malachi 3.16, the Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. There is also, you're probably familiar, the one that probably comes to mind first is in Revelation 20, the idea of books being opened at the great white throne judgment scene uh, where there are books that, that evidently have to do with the people who belong to God. So it's not the writing in the book that's significant. It's the fact that God knows you and that God has assigned you a place where he is. He wants you. He knows you. You belong to him. So when Jesus says, rejoice that your names are written in heaven, that's what he's getting at. You have a relationship with God that no one can take away from you. This is something you belong to God, whether the demons are subject to you or not. That's, don't, don't bury the lead. That's the important part. Jesus says that relationship is the right kind of joy. It's not clear that they're going to be able to cast out demons forever. But I can almost guarantee that just like most things in life, what is really exciting and joyful initially tends to wear off with time. Have you had that experience? The first time you get to do something new and cool and fun, it's new and cool and fun. And then over time, you just kind of get used to it. So if our joy is tied to some new power or some exciting experience, then inevitably we're going to reach a point where our joy just kind of dims. And Jesus says, that's not why I want you to rejoice. Don't rejoice in this. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. But more than just the idea that it might fade, there is the danger that there are people who cast out demons who are not ultimately right with God. I say that because Jesus says in Matthew 7, and 23, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So we cast out demons in your name, and Jesus said, but I never knew you. And it would be a horrific tragedy to cast out demons and be excited about that and then end up not being in a right relationship with God at the end. So this is the right kind of joy. Rejoice in your relationship with God that your names are written in heaven. Joy springs from the fact that you and I are the object of God's love and that God cares enough about us that he sent his son to build this relationship so that our names could be written in his book. Joy comes from the fact that we have lived a life that took us away from God and that God did not just write us off but instead brought us back and welcomed us. The fact that God knows the very worst things about you and me and loves us anyway and wants to live with us eternally anyway. So that is the joy. That's the right kind of joy. It seems to me that what Jesus is getting at, you guys have heard me say this before, but I really do think this is the essence of it, is that idea of do we love the gift or do we love the giver? That sometimes we get so excited about the blessings God gives, just like they are. It's like, it's like a kid at a birthday party. Oh, I got a new toy. It's so shiny. It's exciting that we forget that what the gift represents is far more important. The gift represents someone who loves me enough to give me a gift, a giver and not just a gift. And so here are the disciples 
hey, we got this cool power. This is so cool. And Jesus says, don't forget what really matters. Don't rejoice in the gift. Rejoice in the giver. The second thing I want to say about the right kind of joy is where this conversation goes from here, which is rejoice in what God has done. It's as if Jesus says, now, let me show you what it looks like to really rejoice with the right kind of joy. Luke 10 and verse 21. Verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So after correcting their joy, don't rejoice in this. Jesus says in verse 21, he rejoices in the Holy Spirit. This is the right kind of joy, which is the idea of kind of a joy that mixes worship and an awe at God. So I'm going to rejoice and I'm going to pray, but also in his prayer, he is just praising God for what God has done. He is rejoicing in God. Now, verse 21, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. I love this picture. It's a picture of God seeing people. And and you might put quotes around the wise and understanding. These are the people that you would expect to be on the front lines of when God was going to do something, they would say, oh, I knew God was going to do that. These are the theologians of that time, the really wise people. And he says, well, actually, you've hidden what you're doing from them. And you've revealed it to the least likely people. And Jesus is amazed at that because it reflects a unique kind of genius. You've read through 1 Corinthians 1. That picture in 1 Corinthians 1 is that God has not chosen the mighty and the noble, but instead he has chosen the lowly of the world and revealed his will to them and and in doing so put to shame the mighty and the noble and the wise. The idea is that God is working in a way that man would never work. And that makes Jesus rejoice in God. He looks at what God has done and he says, this is awesome. It makes him happy. Verse 22 All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So God continues to hide that from people who think that they're so smart that they don't need to listen to God, and instead reveals it to those who the Son chooses, those who are humble and willing to seek him. And in particular, there is the idea that that God has hidden these things for a long time and then revealed them. That's verse 23 and 24. 24 says, For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. These people are particularly blessed. These 70 that he's looking at right now who come back and they're so excited. Look what we can do. And he says, you're blessed more than you know. Not because you have this power for this moment. You're blessed because the whole of human history has been building to this moment. And for some reason, God chose you 72 people to reveal his will to the world. Lots of good people for lots of years wanted to know what you know, wanted to see what you see, and didn't get to see it. Jesus rejoices in what God has done. 
I have to tell you, I, I can't help but sit here. We're about 2,000 years downwind of a passage like this and say very similar things. Can you imagine what somebody who even lived during this time would think if they could spend five minutes in our time? To know what it's like that, that not only do they have all the technological advancements and the civilization advancements that we experience and we take for granted, but that the whole revelation of God where they only saw bits and pieces and little um, slices here and there, that we have it in its completion. And not only that, but, but we can carry it around on a three-inch phone. And it's been translated by the work of thousands of scholars over the intervening centuries so that we can read it in modern American English and understand it completely. And then if you're curious, you know, you can also look up all the Greek words and what they all mean, usually with just the push of a button. We are incredibly blessed to live in the time in which we live because of what we know God has done and how he's preserved it for us. In fact, I, I think we need to stop and think about how the vision we have can be affected by where we stand in history. That, for example, we can look back in Isaiah 53, or we can look through the Psalms, and we can see where these prophecies were pointing toward a Messiah who would come, fulfill those prophecies in a way that was unexpected by the people of that time, and see what God was doing beginning to end. And the question is, does that make you happy at all? Does that affect you at all? Because Jesus rejoices in the Holy Spirit and says, look at what God has done. There is rejoicing in that. That's the right kind of joy. That says not, I'm excited because I get some cool stuff. But I'm excited because I see what God is doing in the world. We sometimes sing the song, uh, Count Your Many Blessings. And that, that song, that's what we say. Count Your Many Blessings, see what God has done. What do we mean there? Well, we don't just mean what God's done in revealing Scripture. We usually mean what God has done in our lives personally. But that is the same principle that we rejoice in what God has done. We see that what we have is not our own doing. And it's not just about the gifts we have. It's about the giver that they communicate about. I love the fact that when you look around this church building, and I know we're missing a lot of people because of uh, what's going on, but you look around this church building, and what you see is that each person here represents an incredible amount of work God has been doing. Every one of us is a special rescue mission for God. And some of us he rescued from different things, some of us he rescued from broken homes or from addiction. Some of us he rescued from religious error. Some of us he rescued from a hopelessness and desperation in life. And we know each other and we know some of those stories. But when we come together, it's not just, oh, hey, it's John. It's something much deeper than that. That we are celebrating what God has done for us and what God has done for one another and then what God is doing through us together. All of that is God's work. And when you step back from that, 
that's far more important than some small trinket that I might get, some little thing that might make me happy for a few minutes, and then the novelty wears off and I move on. This is rejoicing in what God has done and is doing. You go outside and you look at nature, and you look at the the turning of the seasons. You look at the beautiful landforms that exist in our world, and you say, look at what God has done. Jesus is turning our eyes to say there is more to this life than just whether or not you're happy in the moment. That's not the right kind of joy. The right kind of joy is deeper and broader and bigger because it says God is at work. And then when we get a little more personal and we talk about how God is answering my prayers and strengthening me and equipping me and using me and making me into a better man, I rejoice in that too. Not because I just benefit personally, but because I continue to see what God is doing in the world. So, in the beginning we talked about life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And you can see how that pursuit drives all of us. We keep searching for it and searching for it. Jesus is saying it's right here. God has already given you the joy that you need. It is up to us to seize what we have. Realize that joy is only found and fulfilled in God. So, I urge you to think about and rejoice in what God has done and rejoice in your relationship with him. I appreciate your attention. We'll be dismissed for our classes.